Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Graham, who is on a mission to save lives after getting a phone call that every parent dreads. I had to find out more and more. I was determined that Claire was not going to die in vain. And it also helped keep me going in setting up a legacy for Claire, that she was not going to die in vain. I was determined to find out what could be done to help prevent these deaths, both reactively and also proactively. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Graham talks to me about the sudden death of his daughter Claire from an undiagnosed heart condition, the shocking impact on his family, and keeping a promise that her death wouldn't be in vain. Graham, thank you so much for joining me on the ticker tapes today. Um, could we start by, could, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your family? Yes, uh, I'm a 68-year-old, uh, just about a retired um, IT engineer. I worked for a large IT company for over, for 40 years, man and boy. I'm married, happily married, with my lovely wife, Anne. Uh, we have a son um, who is... Um, who's a senior officer in the Merchant Navy. And uh, we have a couple of lovely grandchildren, which we, which, we, which we completely adore. And obviously, of course, we had a lovely daughter, Claire. Yeah. So can you, I mean, we're going to talk a, a lot about Claire. So can you just tell me a little bit about Claire, you know, her hopes and dreams and where she was, at what stage she was in her life? Yes, um, Claire uh, um, got married um, in 2012 to a lovely guy, um, Andy, who she adored. Uh, she was a qualified accountant. Uh, that's how that she met Andy. He was a qualified accountant. They worked at the same company. Uh, she also had an interest in starting her own beauty business, which she uh, was keen to do. Uh, she was fit, healthy, looked after herself, um, never smoked, um, um, drank alcohol to real moderation, um, kept her weight down, exercised. You know, she did all the good things you'd hope of a child. And uh, she was very, very happy um, with Andy. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, and that's really, that's in a nutshell what Claire was. So she was a happy, fit young lady. Yeah, very beautiful as well. I've seen pictures of her as well. Thank she, you very much. Yeah, yeah. she was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so she'd been married for five months. Yeah, she was 22 years old yeah. when she died and had been married only five months um, to Andy. Yeah. Wow. And so she was. everything was really going well for her and she had a lot to look forward to. Yes, so she was. So they had their own home, which mm-hmm. they were buying. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a little dog. Um, they were thinking about starting a family, uh, that we know that, because she often uh, whispered her mum's ear, you know, maybe next year. Hmm. Um, she uh, was well-organised. Um, I looked after herself and looked after her lovely husband. Yeah. So tell me what you can about um, what you recall of, of 2013 when everything changed for your family. It was about 1.30 in the morning on the 9th of March 2013. Mm-hmm. We had a very distraught um, son-in-law on the phone um, in, um, in his own words. He just said, Claire, stop breathing. Claire was away with some friends for a social weekend at a spa 
a girly spa weekend at a resort to the west of Taunton in Somerset. Um, I knew from what Andy had told me, it didn't sound good at all. I contacted the A&E department at the hospital that Claire had eventually been taken to and spoke to the A&E consultant who informed me the outlook was not very good. Um, Claire had been, um, her and her friends had been, um, they'd had a meal, they'd been swimming, and this is important, as Claire's heart was being worked. Uh, she got out of the jacuzzi, um, out of the pool and got into a jacuzzi, and that's also significant, as I'll mention later. While she was in the jacuzzi, she became yeah. very hot, felt sick. Her friends got her out into the fresh air outside. And bearing in mind this is March, so it was pretty cold, uh, she collapsed and died, just like that. Her friends, um, oh. one of them was a training nurse. They, uh, they, um, they started CPR and continued CPR until eventually the ambulance arrived. It was a, the weather that night right across southern England was terrible with thick fog. I remember driving down there, where we drove down there, and I, it was terrible. And it took a long time for the ambulance to arrive. The place was very rural, difficult to find. And so the ambulance arrival was also protracted. Sadly, the spa uh, where Claire and her friends were at had no defibrillator. We, uh, we firmly believe, although it can never be said 100%, that had the spa resort had a defibrillator, it may well have brought Claire back to us and she still would be with us. Um, um, subsequently, Claire was taken to hospital where she was declared dead. Wow. So, tragically, Claire had already passed away by the time you got to the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't imagine, Graham, what that drive must have been like. I mean, was it was it surreal? Were you in a state of, of shock when you were driving? What, yes, what was yeah. going through your mind well, at the time? Um, you were just focused on getting there. Yeah. Um, somehow we navigated our way down through on the fog, and on, I mean, it was really thick fog. Yeah. And going from um, Southampton to Taunton is not the most direct route, so no. you've got lots of A roads to go through and some B roads. Um, fortunately, when we arrived at the hospital, the staff were very sweet. They were there waiting for us. And, um, yeah, we just had to get there. Can I just, before we sort of move on, can I just ask you, did um, did her friend start CPR? Because I understand that one of her friends was a trainee nurse, so she knew exactly what to do. Yep, so she knew what to do and yeah. she lined up others to take over in turns and they mm -hmm. continued that until the ambulance arrived and they were able to take over. But right. by then, Claire was completely dead. Right. I mean, when you got to the hospital... Did anybody, how long was it before someone sort of explained to you what they thought had happened? Because that must have been another factor. She, you know, as you yep. described, she looked perfectly healthy. She was a normal yes. young yep. woman. So, you know, you must have been thinking, what the actual hell has happened here? Well, um, they took us to a family room where the, um, the consultant, who's also named Strange Enough, it was Claire, mm -hmm. came and had a chat with us and explained to us what we were going to see uh, but she whispered in my ear that they believed it was SADS sudden arrhythmic death syndrome and she said we will be advising the coroner of that 
and as she said, there's nothing to be suspicious about mm -hmm. her death, even though the police had to do all the normal stuff, um, you know, was there drugs, uh, excess alcohol, oh. and, you know, all the answers were no. Um, all, the, all her friends had to be questioned about had drugs been involved, and of course they hadn't, and that was confirmed in the, in the pathology reports. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the jacuzzi temperature was checked and it was the normal and also a correct temperature. Mm -hmm. um, I will harp back a little bit. I say that Claire had been swimming, so her heart was being exercised. Yeah. Um, her heart rate was up and then she got into the jacuzzi. And from what that we now know is Claire died almost, uns um, almost certainly of a condition called Brigada syndrome. Yeah. which is a syndrome, it's an arrhythmia a syndrome to do with the sodium and potassium ion flow in the heart. And it's aggravated by exercise and also heat or fever. Yeah. So there was two, um, uh, two ingredients um, that set um, uh, the scenario up. Yeah. Claire had been exercising, her heart was beating quickly, and she then got into a jacuzzi and that probably was the final trigger set her heart off into an abnormal arrhythmia, which have been very fast beating, that the heart does not recover and can't control yeah. itself. Of course, you know all that now because you've been on a, on, on a very long, arduous journey, which we'll talk about. But at the, just going back to that time when the consultant whispered in your ear, we think Claire's died from sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. Did you have any clue, Graham, at that time what that was? I had none whatsoever. Yeah. But I, it, it, at, at that time, I thought, I'm going to find out. Mm. Um, and um, I worked, eventually when we got home and I managed to settle a little bit, I got onto the computer, onto the internet, and started searching SADS, SADS. And I was alarmed what I was finding. Um, various organisations and what SADS really was and what it wasn't. It is not a heart attack. It is a cardiac arrest. And a lot of people get confused, heart attack, cardiac arrest, very easy to do. Absolutely. Um, and I um, had to find out more and more. So um, I was determined that Claire was not going to die in vain. And it also helped uh, um, keep me going in setting up a legacy for Claire, that she yeah. was not going to die in vain. And uh, I was determined to find out what could be done to help prevent these deaths both reactively and also proactively and it's the proactive thing I've been very active on as well um, but, and also find out were any other members of our family at risk and I then I got involved with the charity Cardiac Risk in the Young who helped us a lot mm -hmm. um, the whole family um, and Andy her husband as well and we decided that in Claire's memory as her legacy, we would set up five goals. The first one was to raise the awareness of SADS, or Southern Arrhythmic Death Syndrome, or sometimes it's called Young Southern Cardiac Death. Secondly, is to facilitate heart screening of young people aged 14 to 35. Thirdly, is to encourage um, anyone who has a family history of heart um, problems, in particular, if they have experienced themselves a chest pain that's exercise related, breathlessness, palpitations, which is a high heart rate, dizziness or fainting, which are unexplained, to go and see a doctor and, and to try and get a cardiology, your referral if possible. 
The other the next items were to raise the awareness and the installation of community public access defibrillators. They are defibrillators that are open to the public. They're not locked away in cupboards or storerooms or, you know, where people can't get them. They're out there in the open. And the fifth area was to lobby Her Majesty's Government to, um, to provide heart screening for young people. Also, on top of the trauma of losing Claire in such a horrendous way, there was also the realisation that this was a genetic condition and that it it could have affected other members of your family. So can you tell me what that was like? How were you tested? That was probably the most difficult part, yeah. was getting into the system. Yeah. Under the National Screening Framework 8, that was published in 2008, if I'm if I'm correct, by the, by the, by the government at the time and the Department for Health. Um, our first hurdle was was trying to convince our local GP and their general practitioners, they're not heart specialists, that this document existed. I was given a copy, and fortunately, that my GP clicked, and she performed an ECG. And it was important; it had to be with a 12 lead ECG machine, not a six lead or anything else. Uh, but it, it needs to be by someone who really knows what they're doing. Okay. We then um, got referred, both my wife and my son and I, to the local cardiology unit um, in Southampton, who were first class. They then took over the work and performed additional um, tests, some under exercise. And eventually, my wife and I and my son had a provocation test called the Adramaline test. And that my wife um, passed the test completely without any problems. My son failed the test quite quickly. I also failed on the test. That confirmed it was Brugada syndrome. Mm -hmm. Brugada syndrome and arrhythmia problems in hearts cannot be detected when the patient is dead. They can only be detected when the heart is beating. So we were found, my, my son and I, to have actually Brugada and subsequently talking to a geneticist with what family history that we could dredge up um, was that it did come through my bloodline. So it, it was a paternal genetic um, defect. Subsequently, I obviously had to let my brother know. He had some real problems getting his uh, GP to agree to do the tests. And eventually he dropped the said document on his desk and said, please read and please test me. Um, fortunately, that my brother tested negative. I'm all the way through on the system. Yeah. So just just to clarify for people listening, so it's almost certain that Claire sadly passed away from Brugada undetected. Yep. And that um, her heart, when uh, it was looked at by Professor Mary Shepherd at that time at the Royal Brompton, her heart was found to be perfect, um, absolutely perfect heart. But as I mentioned earlier, arrhythmia problems cannot be detected when after the person has has passed away only when the heart is beating. Yeah. Um, I, I want to be as sensitive as I can here, Graham. but do you mind if I ask you, what, what did that feel like when you found out that this is something, this is a condition that had come, you know, had been inherited from your side of the family? Did you, was there kind of guilt involved? Although, of course, there should not be, but um, um, had, had, how did that make you feel? Yes, it did. And yeah. I still feel guilty now. 
I'm sorry to ask you that, but I think it will resonate yeah. with other people going through it. But of course, there's nothing that you can do about it. No. It's been passed down, you know, um, um, through generations. You don't yeah. cause it. Yeah. But yes, it it's um it it gives me a very heavy heart. Yeah, 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 and. To, to get on to the, the, the positive thing that has come out of this is that you said, you know, rather movingly just today here, and also you've told me before that you made a silent promise to Claire that her death wouldn't be in vain. So you have been absolutely on a mission, haven't you, both yep. you and your wife, yep. Anne, uh, to ensure this doesn't happen to any other family. So yep. Yep. T- tell me what that journey's been like for well, you. We've been very fortunate, um, not just with the charity cry, but also with yourselves, because we've been involved with you, and I'll talk a bit about defibrillators in a minute. Yeah. Um, we Awareness, raising awareness costs nothing. You just need to get involved with the media. Let them hear your story, your very sad story, yeah. which thousands of families go through, and raise the awareness. And the other area is that you need to... Um, once you've got the awareness, just keep on beating the drum. I recently have had um, media coverage yet again from, from the local media. They're more than willing to keep covering up the story to get the message out there. This is a silent killer and it's out there. And it is actually preventable and that we should be doing more about it. So part of the awareness thing is to get people to nudge their members of parliament to try and get the government into doing more, um, is to work with charities. And you know, in our case, we raised the awareness and also facilitated the fundraising. We've raised, um, to date, £80,000 to facilitate the heart screening of 1,800 young people. That is incredible. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now, back to the conversation. talk a little bit more about you know the other strand of your incredible work is raising awareness um of defibs being needed in public places so that people can quickly access them which sadly wasn't the case at you know at the spa where claire was so again at the time i was a parish councillor i talked to my parish council colleagues and i was proud to lead a program locally where we funded quite quickly of three defibrillators within our local parish. And I, I spread the word and I was fortunate enough to have uh, to work with the local Rotary Group and other organisations and the local council to get them installed locally, get more of them installed and make people aware of them and also not to be afraid of them. Uh, we organised the training, this was the parish council, by the uh, South Central Ambulance Service. And they were quite blunt, you know, where people ask questions like, oh, what if it's a lady? You've got to cut their bra off. You're saving their life. What if they've got piercings? And they said, well, I wouldn't say what they said, but it was (laughs) colourful. But they said, you're saving their life. What if I break their ribs? You're doing the job properly then, yeah? Yeah. 
And what if I get sued? Well, there have sadly been some people who have tried it, but now there's the Good Samaritans Charter, which is on the statute books, where you will not get sued at all um, because you're saving somebody's life. So that was part, and we started seeing the defibrillators appearing. And as I said, they need to be community public access, not locked in cupboards, mm -hmm. not locked in storerooms where no one knows where they are, uh, where they're not being looked after. They need to be maintained, looked after, and available. And you get them by calling 999. They'll tell you where they are, apart from the apps, and there are some wonderful nationwide apps now available for use on your phone where you can find out where that they are. But the ambulance service will tell you where one is as well and will give you the access number. The other item is we looked at the funding and I thought, why are we paying BAT on a life-saving um, device? And this is a challenge others have had as well, and not just in the UK, I believe Ireland had the same challenge. And I wrote to the Treasury asking them if the, if the BAT on community public access um, defibrillators could be actually removed. I got back an answer which I wasn't quite happy with. Uh, I felt it was more of a fob off. Uh, basically, it was red tape and VAT and, you know, complying with EU legislation. I thought, oh, this is rubbish. Anyways, very shortly afterwards, um, by our, our then, who was our prospective MP, Mims Davies, who's a good friend of ours now, um, she introduced me to the then Chancellor, George Osborne, wow. when he was visiting our village. And I mentioned this to him. He said, I've seen that letter. He said, I could do better than that. And he took it on board. He listened to our, our sad story. And anyway, he didn't think too much more of it. And then just before the budget in um, 2015, we had a phone call in confidence from other treasury saying that um, our name would be mentioned in the budget and that the chancellor had earmarked one million pounds that in that year's budget from LIBOR funds to fund the defibrillators for use in England. And that happened. He wrote to Anne and I, he mentioned our names in the chamber. And also the following year, he did the same thing again. How did that make you and Anne feel? You, you must have been proud despite the horrendously sad circumstances. Yeah, we were um, a little shocked. Yeah. Um, we were very it was very kind of him, and his note, um, his personal letter to us was very kind. And um, he, I believe, knew of the um, Fabrice Boamba case quite well. Yeah. I think he was a, a member or he was a supporter of that football club. Um, so he he showed a lot of empathy. And, um, yeah, yeah, we felt, um, I wouldn't say proud, but we thought we would achieve something for Claire. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is your next step now? Because you... You are literally unstoppable, and I know that you know you got in touch with us recently um, because you wanted to support the work that we're doing with defibs, and particularly the circuit, which is mapping yep. where defibs are across the country. Yep. So, as you say, people know exactly where to find them. Some people say, "Oh, but there's one ten minutes down the road. That's too far away. Yeah. You need to have them." We need to get the price driven down. We need to make them community public accessible mm -hmm. in a nice warm, cosy box because uh, they need to be kept warm in the winter to stop yeah. the battery discharging too quickly. Yeah. They need to have a light on so people know 
there's one in there and it's a green light, a red light, it's out, it's either in use, or if it's no light, then the, then then probably the box has got a problem with it. Yeah. Um, and we need to it, we need to install these, but they are the crisis tool. It's mm -hmm. they are the last resort, yeah. and we need to have them installed in or made available to places that are actually actually remote. Recently, there's been an article there in Sweden where they have delivered a defibrillator by drone. They've actually done one, and they saved the gentleman's life. I believe we should be looking at that seriously in the UK because we have a lot of national parks where I live on the south coast. There's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of sailing and yachting a community. Um, if somebody on a yacht or a, or a small um, craft had a cardiac arrest, you know, it's going to take you a while to get a lifeboat there or even a helicopter. Sure. If you had a drone, you could drop one on them. If you're out in a national park where there's no power, so therefore you can't have a defibrillator installed on a wooden post because you need to keep it warm, but you could use a drone. I do understand there has been a pilot run in Wales uh, where, they, where they sort of mimicked actually doing it, and I believe it was noted as it was achievable, but it needs pushing. Yeah. It needs pushing at legislation level. Yeah. Can I ask you about your your own health now and your son's health? Because I know you said that you've had, since your diagnosis of Brigada, you've had um, ICDs fitted, which yes. which are kind of an in, uh, hopefully an insurance against you having a cardiac arrest. But you have grandchildren as, as well, um, very young grandchildren. So is one of your concerns that they may turn out to have the condition in the future? I know that our little granddaughter is checked as much as they can all of the time. She's regularly checked. And she's only could... six, isn't she? Yeah, she's six, yeah. yeah. And my little grandson, he's only four months. But Bless. they will be monitored and watched. And as soon as they're old enough, they will be, they will be tested. Yeah. yeah. So that must give you some comfort. Yeah, that they're being monitored and they are very aware that, yeah. that their dad has... Uh, ICD fitted, yeah. and it's come down through the paternal line. And uh, yeah, and going back to your own health, how, how do you feel? Are you, you know, you sound, you sound really well, and obviously it's not. Well, apart you. from <laughs> the problems that afflict you when you get um, later in life, uh, arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing Anyone to do with find... the heart, though, Graham. No, I mean I've never had any 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 problems that I'm aware of, or, or can even remember with my heart. Yeah. Um, so it was a total shock. Um, but um, I don't know the ICDs there. After the, after the initial implant, you feel a bit sore, as you would do when someone stabbed you uh, for a few weeks. Uh, but once it's there, it's there. Um, you just need to watch um, things like contact sports. Some I don't box, never box, but things like rugby, you just have to watch it a little bit. But then recently there's been a, um, a Danish footballer who had a cardiac arrest? He had an ICD fitted. I'm not sure what condition he was determined to have, Ericsson, but he, yeah. but he's back playing international football again. Yeah. So you know he's they've got something in front of his ICD in case he gets contact and you can get them, um, but you don't know it's there. And the same goes um, true of um, for our son. He he has to have a every merchant say every merchant seaman um, has to have a medical every every two or three years. And he's only got one condition on his, and that is that he's not allowed on the bridge on his own, which is most unlikely to happen in the role that he's in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And could I mean you've you've mentioned screening, of which you're obviously a huge advocate. Um, yeah. But in terms of you know British Heart Foundation research, we work a lot, and we fund Professor Elijah Bear, who's doing he's a specialist in Brigada and doing a lot of research in that field. What what would success look like for you in terms of research? What would you like to see? Professor Bear and you know and his his ilk. What would you like to see them do? Well, um, particularly if if we talk about Brigada <laughs> is to find perhaps some form of medication that could control Brigada. At the moment, the medication that is sort of available is not, I understand, that reliable enough. So hence, the implantation of an ICD, <laughs> which that is once again you're going to have a cardiac arrest before that kicks in or it will see the heart rate go up above a certain number then it will kick in and give you a shock to get that heart rate back down again um i guess ultimately um some form of genetic engineering Mm -hmm. uh that could be used to um look at the dna and modify it i believe that is coming um and talking to the cardiologists at the hospital look after us uh, they say you know, that will be the biggest major step forward in medicine for everything once they can crack the genes and how to repair those defective genes will be the biggest step forward. But I think that could be a long time away. Yeah, yeah but we are working on it, Graham. Yeah. You know that. <laughs> can I ask you as a final question, um, what do you think Claire would make of what you have done since in her memory? Oh, no, that's a really hard question. Um, I think she'd be very proud. Yeah. Um, and she would have been, if she um, had been saved, she would have been involved with us. So she would have got stuck in as well. Claire was a fun, loving young lady. She liked things that people were happy with, any event she went to. So all the fundraising that we've done, we've always made sure it's a pleasant, happy event. I mean, some of the things that I personally haven't done, some family members have, um, skydiving, um, tough mudders, you know, things like that. (laughs) But it's always, people have got something out of it as well, uh, a sense of achievement that you're doing this for something. And I think she would have been proud of us. Amazing. Thank you so much, Graham, um, for sharing your story with us and, and good luck with all your campaigning in the future. Thank you. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and want to talk with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's Heart Helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash hearthelpline. You'll find all the contact options there. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. And if you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts on this episode, get in touch with us by emailing theticketapes at bhf.org.uk.